if I challenge you and if I get you to think in a different way, if I make you feel a little bit insecure and you rethink things, I'll have added something to you and you will know better why you believe what you believe or you will think again about what you believe. And I think it's a really important skill in life to realize that you don't know everything because if you think you know, you will not learn. Today, I am talking to Mindy Chen Wishart. Mindy is a professor of the law of contract at the University of Oxford, a tutorial fellow in law at Merton College, and currently the dean of the faculty of law here at Oxford. She also holds a fractional professorship at NUS in Singapore, a visiting professorship at Hong Kong University, and has visited and taught at law schools across Asia, Europe, and Australasia. For the lawyers listening, Mindy is also author of one of the leading textbooks on contract law and editor of Cheating on Contracts and of the series of Studies in the Contract Laws of Asia. Mindy, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. It's great to be here. It's great to talk to you. Mindy, you are quite the remarkable woman, I have to say, from the get-go. You've reached the highest highs of a truly international career in academia, yet you also don't shy away from a fight and you've, for instance, taken head-on the problems of systemic racism in academia. And you do it all with a smile and a sense of humour along the way. So today I am just really hoping that we can Uh, unpack how you've come to be the person that you are today. And I think the perfect starting point, really the only starting point to do that is the beginning. And I'm hoping you can tell us where you've come from, your story and how you've come to be where you are today. Well, it's a bumpy road and um, and not a conventional one, as you might imagine. But um, I was born in a very tiny village in Taiwan uh, called Luodong. Uh, and then my parents moved to Taipei, which is the capital city where my father was teaching. They had four little girls and uh, this was regarded as really, truly bad luck. Uh, for a for a Chinese family to be saddled with four girls and no boys. Um, and so I think to my parents' credit or, or, or not, <laughs> I'm not sure, but they wanted to show that girls could be as good as boys. And um, so we were part of that mission, I think, for my parents. And I think I should be very grateful for that. Um, I never, I was never aware of kind of school having to be good at school, but I, what I do remember is the swimming. So those of us who were old enough were into, we started competitive swimming and that was a really good discipline. It meant that I started competing with myself early on. And I would remember trying to do tricks in the pool and trying to do more and more and holding my breath and all of these things. And, um, I suppose in Taiwan, I remember my grandma who, um, you know, despite there being four girls and people remembered the name of the eldest and the cute, cutesy youngest couldn't remember the name of, of the two of us in the middle. <laughs> but she um, saw me and I think that stood me in good stead for a long time. She gave me piggybacks and, you know, let me nap with her and so on. So I, th- I think everybody needs someone who sees them and and, you know, really thinks highly of them. Then, of course, we immigrated to New Zealand, which um, I was not at all happy about uh, when I was 10 years old. And I I told my parents that I would stay with my grandma and I would come and see them, but I wasn't going to go with them. Hmm. 
not surprisingly, I had no real vote in this. So um, I was piled onto the plane and off we went. And um, in New Zealand, I think was the first time that I felt like I stood out because it, you know, Christchurch, where we first went, is a very white, um, very English um, place. And uh, in fact, I remember when the four of us girls went out for a walk and we were like stepladders, you know, we were two years apart. And so our height and everything was, we're, you know, we were stepped down and, and we caused a, a, a pile up because a driver was staring at us and uh, and and he, he lost control of his car and there was a huge pile up. And we didn't, you know, we were told that we were the cause of this accident. Oh, my goodness. Because we were so it was so unusual to see people of a different race there. Um, and, but Christchurch was a benign place. And then we moved to Dunedin. My father uh, got another job and at the teacher's training college. And so we moved to Dunedin. And I think that was the first time I felt racism. And um, so that, that maybe I can talk about that later. But just very briefly, um, you know, in Dunedin, I suppose I you know, um, along with the racism, but also I felt I really flourished at school. And uh, when I got to university, um, you know, uh, my my parents wanted me to do medicine. If you're good from a good Asian family, the more medics, the better. And I was the second in the family. My older sister is is a doctor. And so I was expected to follow in her footsteps. And I could see others of my friends having so much more fun than rote learning bits of the body and how they worked. And I just wasn't intuitive about it. So I, I went off to do history, which was a huge disappointment to my father anyway, because um, it's not a career um, subject. But secretly, I did law because he wanted me, if I wasn't going to do medicine, to do law. And I thought, I don't want to do what he wants me to do. So I did law secretly, but I found it so much fun. And uh, when you say secretly, Mindy, sorry to jump in. When you say secretly, were you studying it on the side of history or were you also enrolled? Yeah, I was enrolled, okay. but I didn't tell, you know, didn't really say much to my parents. I was doing a, a four year history degree and I did picked up law alongside it. Okay. And I just found my first year so much fun, so interesting that I was hooked, really. But I was married really young um, at 22. So I suppose that's the, the next sort of stepping stone and a big, big. And I became a, a pretty fundamentalist Christian. So that probably goes with being married very young and uh, had um, two sons um, before I was supposed to go on sabbatical leave. And one thing, um, again, it's it's another twist and turn, but I I ended up at Oxford despite really not liking uh, anybody from Oxford that I had met before. <laughs> <laughs> I came as the Rhodes Visiting Research Fellow. Yes. And I had a dreadful two years because I had postnatal depression. So I went through the I'm hopeless. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to be a disappointment to everyone. Everyone's going to find me out that I'm not as clever as they think I am. I have nothing to show for it. I will go back to New Zealand. I will work my year out and then I will quit law altogether, teaching law altogether, because I'm not good at this. So um, in that frame of mind, um, uh, it was time to go back to New Zealand. And my husband then said that he you know, he wanted to stay a bit longer because we'd been so poor whilst we were in Oxford. 
that we hadn't really visited anything, you know, we hadn't seen anywhere and he'd just got a job. So I thought I'll fix him. So I thought I'll, I'll apply for a job that I can't possibly get. It would be an impossible job. Then I can say, see dear, I tried, let's go back to New Zealand. And um, my plan went horribly wrong. So I ended up as a fellow at Merton um, and a, an associate professor at the law faculty, which was terrible because I promised to teach all kinds of things and had no intention of teaching. And now I had to teach them. So I ended up teaching mm -hmm. sort of eight years of restitution with Peter Burks, you know, the great Peter Burks. And so, you know, that'll, that'll um, teach me a lesson. Um, so 15 years, I suppose, after I started at Oxford, I I started uh, visiting Asia during the summer vacations. I think it was sort of a bit of a midlife crisis. And if you've been a double immigrant, you um, want to find your way home. So I did it through teaching in Asia, but also my series on studies in the contract laws of Asia, another thing that gave me an excuse to, to go there. And um, so I, I felt I was doing my job, but I was also doing my own thing. And um, so I was a bit surprised when I was on sabbatical in 2019, when I got a phone call from uh, the then registrar asking whether I was um, willing to put my name forward or to have my name put forward for the deanship. Um, because, I mean, it really surprised me because they said, you know, we, we would like someone who's knows something about the outside world and who has some experience of the outside world and can bring that to uh, to the faculty. Um, yeah, so so that's how I that's how I got to be dean, but I'm looking forward to being not dean. <laughs> and I think that would be a promotion. <laughs> so <laughs> oh well Mindy, there's so much to unpack in this short tour, I suppose, of the the journey so far. I suppose the first question that comes to mind actually though is just looking at the that big picture. It seems like there are so many moments of serendipity along the way and that really big sliding doors moments have occurred almost without you expecting them to happen. So I wondered just looking back at the moment, to what extent do you think that a younger version of yourself that you would be surprised by where you are now? And then also when you started studying law, for instance, uh, whether you ever had this picture of yourself as being one day uh, an academic in a position that many would say is kind of the, the top of the, the hierarchy of academia as well? Well, I think I think you misunderstand what you know dean means. I mean, that's kind of a servant, in my view. Being yeah. dean is being a servant, so it's a it's a matter for commiseration. It's not not really <laughs> a matter for celebration. Um, but even putting that aside, Mindy. Yes, yes. yes. No, I I don't think the younger me. I mean, when I first got my job at Oxford, um, as I said unexpectedly, I remember very vividly thinking, I don't know how I got here. <laughs> I really can't figure it out, but I made a resolution not to want anything and not to need anything. And I found that that gave me actually tremendous freedom and um, tremendous power to say things and to speak things because I'm not looking for favor from somebody, not of that kind anyway. 
Um, I think you need favor from people in order to work along with them, in order to be a good colleague, in order to be part of the team, but not so they will give you things. No, you know. And so, yes, no, I, I think I think there is no way. So when people always say, how do you, you know, what's your five-year plan? What's your 10-year plan? I find that a completely foreign notion for me. Uh, I've never been a planner. I've always looked at the situation and thought, I think maybe it's partly that I've never been in anyone's tribe because no one would, no one would have me <laughs> very early on. And so from a very early age, I've had to figure out what the parameters for what I wanted to do or what I should do. And, and that will change depending on the circumstances. Uh, and you can't know how you're going to feel as a mother. You're not, you can't know how you're going to feel uh, in certain circumstances. Um, and so I've never been a planner. I've always been an opportunist, I suppose. You know, in our field, we go on about being autonomous human beings and being masters of our own ship and authors of our own stories. Yes, and, and a huge amount of no. We are um, products of the things that happen to us that over which we have no control, like the immigration, you know, and my father moving again when I was quite happy in Christchurch. Uh, and then we moved to Dunedin, which was far more racist because there was a Chinese community there. And so there was a, um, in Christchurch, there were no, there were no Chinese people there. And so we were a complete novelty. But in Dunedin, there were enough for people to, to, to react against it. Um, and then, and then I suppose, you know, during my sabbatical, I wanted to just stay in Dunedin. I was a very, I'm a very homebody. And so I was a bit shocked when, when a mentor of mine came and said, look, you should apply for this. Uh, no, you, you can't stay in Dunedin. You need to go overseas. You know, you've done all your degrees in Otago, you need to go overseas. And I said, how about Sydney? Sydney's far away, you know, and they said, no, 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 you have to go far away. And they, he plonked, a, you know, this Rhodes um, visiting research fellowship application in front of me. I was, I looked at it and laughed. I said, no way. I mean, it's, there's no way I would get such a thing. First of all, it's a postdoc and I don't have a doctorate, you know. And uh, so, so I suppose it's interventions, it's serendipity, it's things that happen to you. And I think there's never an end. There's always a beginning. Everything that happens to you is a new beginning. And things don't happen because you're looking for them necessarily at all. Um, so I got my job. I mean, I was shocked when I got my Rhodes VRF. I was a little bit, well, more than a little bit surprised when I got my fellowship. And um, I suppose I did make an effort to go into Asia because that was my kind of returning home. Um, but certainly the deanship was a surprise to me as well. So I don't think it's about, I think it's about trying to live your best life and trying to make your own decisions. And I never had the pleasure of being part of a tribe which uh, could indicate to me the way to go. Mm. I'm very interested in what you're, you've said as well, Mindy, about not being part of a tribe that has indicated the way to go and having to, by necessity, figure that pathway out for yourself. And I wondered if we can backtrack then to some of those pivotal moments in your early academic career, right at the beginning, where you chose to secretly study law as well, and the kind of closet study of law in that regard. 
I was hoping that you could just talk us through in that period as well, whether you have any reflections on finding your pathway then and then within your family, even choosing to study law when telling your family that you were only studying history to start with. Well, I think um, law sounds dull, right? It Mm -hmm. it does sound dull, uh, but I just found it to be fascinating. And I think a really important factor was the person who taught me, uh, Mark Hennigan, who um, is was the dean at Ox. Well, he was in his first year teaching at the time. He became ultimately the dean at Otago for many years, but he made law so much fun. He was so charismatic that, in a way, I. I'm a contrarian. I did not want to like him because he was so popular and he was so charismatic. I was determined not to like him, but he just won me over, you know, and he made law so much fun that it was impossible not to be dragged along with it. And so in many ways, he's a model for me now uh, of what a teacher can do and what a dean can do, because he was a cheerleader for everybody, everybody. He never held any grudges. He thought well of people. He saw the value in everyone. And I think he, um, you know, I I think every one of us who came across him thought we were special. (laughs) And then you realize he thought everyone was special, but it didn't matter because you, I mean, so I suppose, and I decided that I was not going to do honors, which is the fourth year for law, um, because I'd already done honors in history. And I thought that meant that I would be a practitioner. And so I went for, there was one single job going during recession period in Dunedin, one single job, everybody went north. And I decided that I was bucking the trend being a fundamentalist Christian, I would, you know, career didn't come first, I would, you know, home was first and my spouse and so on. And so I was going to stay in Dunedin, take on a solicitor's job, and that would be me. Hmm. And then I went to the interview. And the person, and I was asked what my husband's five-year plan was. I was told that um, women had been quite problematic for them in the past. And what did I say to that? I mean, it was was really a bit shocking. And I realized that I guess that I was quite competitive and that I would win in that environment. But in that environment, I may not like myself. I could only think of myself you know, as old as 40. And I remember thinking, I will get to 40. And what will I have done? I will have saved rich people a lot of money, you know, because only rich people can afford me. Um, And and I went back to my university in a bit of crisis. I went to one of my uh, professors and I said, look, I've just done this interview and I feel really uncomfortable about it. You know, if they offered me the job, I don't think I want to take it. Um, And he said, come and do a master's degree you know, come and do a master's. And I saw that as a way out. So so off I went, you know, they did offer me the job and I turned it down and went off and did a master's, which was a three-year deal, actually. I think that's what happens if you're not a self-confident university, you make your people do a three-year master's degree. (laughs) Hmm. Um, but, But I think, yeah, so I started doing my master's degree and I started doing tutorials and realized how much I loved it. But I think, Um, One of the probably one of the turning points for me, which I haven't mentioned is, well, I have mentioned it becoming a Christian. But what it meant was that I became a youth group leader really, really young. I was um, 16. I wanted to be in a youth group. I wanted to be cool and in a youth group. 
Um, and we didn't have a youth group. And I moaned about this. And um, my boyfriend said, well, you can start a youth group. And I thought, but I don't want to start a youth group. I want to be in a youth group. And no, so I started a youth group. And so from about 17 to 21, I did four years of youth group leadership. And that really trained my skills because no one was watching over me. No one was telling me what to do and I could do whatever I liked. Um, and uh, I think that really set my leadership and management style. And so I think of, I think of my students at Merton College in the same way. And I think of um, the faculty in the same way. You know, you want to make sure everyone's included. You want as much as possible to, to, to be positive about things and to be clear of your common purpose um, and to be working together. So, um, yeah, so I think becoming a Christian was a really big deal for me because of the youth group uh, leadership until, of course, I got engaged. And then the we had a new minister who told me that my priority should be my husband and, and he would take over the youth group. Hmm. Right. Well, actually, on that note as well, I, I read somewhere that you noted that your in-laws weren't particularly pleased uh, early in your career that you were working and that you were a working wife and that you should be at home. Do you have any reflections on on that as well and how that impacted your career? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've... Uh... I, I wanted to be the above Ruby's wife, you know, I wanted to make my own bread and sew my own cloth. I wanted to be belong, I suppose, to, to that group. But um, yes, so, so when I had my first baby and I was still working, I think I was, yes, my, <laughs> my father-in-law said, well, you know, you'd trade your family's happiness for your career. And I was really shocked. Um, um, because this was said publicly. And um, I just quietly said, well, I think we'll just have to agree to disagree. And he said, well, if you can't prove me wrong, then then I must be right. And I was just mortified, you know, mm. um, because, because being a good mother was so important to me. And uh, I remember in Oxford, when I was early on in Oxford, and I had two small ones, um, I said to an older woman, you know, I'm, I'm going to quit law. I'm going to just be a full-time mother because then I will know that I'm a good mother. And she said to me, you know, they're not with you that long. What are you going to do for all the years after they leave? And she said, just hang in there, just hang in there. And I'm so glad I did. And uh, when I mentioned to my sons that um, there had been some disagreement about me being a working mother, um, and I said to them, "Would you do you think do you think you you would have liked me to have been home uh, at home all the time?" And they looked each at each other in horror and said, "Imagine having all of Mum's attention!" You know, <laughs> they were horrified. Uh, oh, that's beautiful in its own way, isn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, I think they're I think they're proud of me. I think they they know that I you know they're they're, they're pleased that I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, they certainly benefit from it, you know. <laughs> yes. Well, it it sounds like, though, that you were very much the, the mother, though, that was the full-time mother, but also the full-time academic and many full-time hats, uh, which I, it's not an uncommon story. Yeah, I think I used to, yes, it's probably true. If You know, I used to finish work early so that I could go and sit in their nurseries and just watch them and just just watch how they how they got on with each other. And I would have to say that in my generation, uh, women didn't expect promotion the same time as men. 
right? So I would say that I my my own publications were fairly sparse. It, I kept it turning over, but I never felt it was a priority. And I got the teaching done. I would get a couple of articles out a year, maybe. Um, but I have to say that since they have left home, I have flown. And that's why I think something like the um, retirement age has a disparate impact on women, because I think women have fewer years um, at the height of their powers because of these years where they're treading water, as it were, at work, because they're full on being mothers as well. Yes, absolutely. Well, before we talk about the period of flight, I would like to dig in a little bit further on those early days in Oxford as well and coming over on the roads visiting research fellowship. It sounds like it was really hard that period of time first coming to Oxford. And you've spoken about why why you stayed, the, the decision, the moment of uh, taking on the position at Merton. But I suppose my my broader question for you is after such a difficult period in Oxford, what was it that had you wanting to stay or what was it that still drew you to academia after that period in time? Um, I I suppose I loved teaching. I mean, youth group was part of that. Youth group was part of seeing young people develop, seeing the penny drop, seeing them become a lot stronger. I actually love being a teacher. It's a vocation for me. It's not an occupational hazard like it is for some academics. Um, I think for me, teaching has always been really core to what I do. And uh, so I made that decision to invest as a tutor in students and to walk them around the meadow and to talk about their careers and so on even yeah. though I didn't have to, you know, even though I didn't have to. So I, th- I suppose, and the and Oxford gives you the kind of teaching you just wouldn't get anywhere else. And there's something soul-destroying about lecturing to 200 people and not one of them you know by name and not one of them, you know, um, respond. And I always say to students, look, if I if I lecture to you, you know, 100 at a time, you just you just scribble down any old rubbish I say. But if I'm teaching you in a group of two, three, four, you're going to say to me, I don't understand that. That doesn't make any sense. And I'm going to say, yeah, it doesn't, does it? Let's think about that, you know? Um, this is con- conventional wisdom. And actually, it's much harder teaching a, a small group of clever people than a huge group of clever people, in fact, you know, because the herd mentality takes over. Um, it's, again, also... People talk talk about autonomy, but Jonathan Herring talks about relational autonomy, and I've written about relational autonomy. So I would say that one of the reasons that I stayed is because my children uh, then said, I don't want to go home. <laughs> we don't want to go to New Zealand. We've now been brought up in, in England. This is where our friends are. And I mean, for a number of years, I kept saying, are we ready to go back to New Zealand? Are we ready to go back to New Zealand? Because... I want to belong somewhere and I miss my sisters very, very much. You know, my parents, my sisters, they're my best friends. And so I I would keep thinking, well, let's go. Is this the year we go back to New Zealand? And um, after a few years, they just, you know, they're happy here. So I've continued here. And I also realized that Merton, um, the collegiate system, and certainly Merton is incredibly respectful of, um, of my space. They assume you can do it. And they let you they let you get to it. 
and you fill the boots even if you think you can't you 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 step up and uh so what's not to love about about merton you know about being in oxford and every day i walk along and i still pinch myself i hope i never mm. get used to the architecture you know the meals the students the colleagues the events that are on um i it's it's very hard to know where you go from here yes yes absolutely do you remember uh i loved hearing you talk about teaching and the vocation that it is for you teaching did did you find that from day one, the first tutorial that you took, you felt that way? Or is it something that you grew into? I really don't know. Um, I mean, <laughs> you know, being a teacher is actually quite good for your ego in many ways. So, I mean, I don't want <laughs> to say that there's anything sacrificial that I'm doing. I just think it's amazing. I think it's amazing that you have this captive audience and you get to speak to them at a very formative time of their lives mm. and you've got to you've got to treasure that opportunity that you've got to make them question the right things because a lot of very privileged people come through oxford and i think one of the things i can show them is to at least question their assumptions and to think about uh people who are not uh, in their circle of friends who are probably not the sort of people they would meet from a day to day, and yet who they're going to end up making policy about, making laws about, and to just consider things from a different point of view. Um, I love the kind of storytelling. I love the responding to them. And I think teaching, you can only really teach someone with whom you have some something of a relationship. I remember myself, teachers who, um, you know, I didn't take to. And um, I didn't care what they said, <laughs> you know. Uh, I remember my final year um, of history, finishing my last exam, going to, up to a professor, a big wig professor, and I said to him, I just want to tell you that I felt stupid in your class. Wow. And I don't think I'm stupid. And he just looked bemused, you know. But I thought to myself, do you realize you only spoke to four people that you liked? The rest of us, you completely ignored. And your manner towards us made us feel stupid and became stupid. You know, people expect great things of you. You step up and you fill those shoes. But if people treat you like you're not worthwhile, then I, they shrink, you know. Mm. So all of those things, my own experience as a student, um, my own experience certainly as a, as a youth group leader, uh, meant that I was... I, I am really, I love turning people around. I love getting them to see a different point of view. I love it when the penny drops or the thing they came in through the door, they didn't, they didn't, they went out a completely different door. And, and I have to say to, I, I warn my students that I say, look, it's my job to disagree with you and to challenge you. So it's not that I don't like you. Please don't cry. Um, you know, whatever you say and however good you are, I will challenge you. You know, I won't just tell you this is if you come in and I just say that's really interesting. Well done you. I'll have added nothing to you. But if I challenge you and if I get you to think in a different way, if I make you feel a little bit insecure and you rethink things, I'll have added something to you and you will know better why you believe what you believe or you will think again about what you believe. And I think it's a really important skill in life to realize that you don't know everything, because if you think, you know, you will not learn. 
Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And I, well, even just my experience has been that the areas of law that I've taken up and really dedicated myself to and chosen to pursue further study in have just been those that I've had excellent teachers that really inspired me. And so it's a position of tremendous power also to help focus their future really in the the area. And so I actually, something I have been wondering, you're area of specialty, Mindy, is contract law. You must take pleasure in a course that for many undergraduates, uh, for at least in my undergraduate studies, there were, of course, those who loved contract law, but there were also many who found it that it was just an experience they had to get through doing contract law. So you must take tremendous pride and pleasure in helping people discover contract law, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, contract law, I always say to students, because I believe it, I always say to students, contract law will change your life, you know, and my view is that uh, human beings are incredibly weak in the animal kingdom, we are furless, fangless, clawless, you know, and yet, and and if you look at our babies, you know, the baby giraffe will get up in half an hour and follow its mother. <laughs> but, you know, my babies. We're pathetic. <laughs> yeah, they're pathetic. And, and they're still, you know, they're still, mom, mom, have you got a toothbrush, you know, um, whatever. So I think, how did we come to dominate this planet? And, you know, to the point of destroying it, it's because of cooperation and coordination. And a big part of that is contract, contracting. And contracting is impossible unless you have contract law. And the big themes of life and in social and in political theory comes to a fore. And that is the kind of kind of how do you balance autonomy versus fairness? That is the perennial question. And so when I talk to them like that, I just think contract law is endlessly fascinating because it's about regulating the way we deal with one another. And I say to students, if, you, if you're a hermit and you live on the top of the mountain, you can be as autonomous as you like. You know, you can run around stark naked, do whatever you like, but you will also have almost no freedom. You will have very little freedom. It's other people who give you freedom. But the minute you live with other people, there needs to be rules that regulate the way you deal with other people. And um, if you can't make everything that you need yourself, you either take it or you trade for it, right? And we don't like it if people just take it. So that's why contract law is important. Mm, mm. It's foundational, absolutely foundational. Mindy, let's talk about the Race Me Too Twitter campaign and the work that you have been doing while you have been dean to shine a light on structural racism in particular. I thought we could address this topic in the context of also, uh, you've spoken throughout the conversation about the desire to find your tribe. And I wondered whether as a, a starting point for this conversation of whether you feel like Oxford has been a place that has given you a tribe uh, and then also uh, the difficulties for those who are seeking to find their tribe in Oxford in relation to race, gender, everything in between? Gosh, I think that's quite a hard question to answer about Oxford Mm. because I can't give a categorical yes. Um, I think if people know who I am, it's important that they know my position and I find that a bit sad, you know. They need to know what my position is, rank, um, serial number, before I'm admitted, as it were, right? But once I'm admitted, fine, you know? But if people don't know who I am, like the um, lodge and the facilities management, I will almost always get challenged. 
and uh, I recently tweeted about something which just really shocked me because the law faculty um, gave refuge, if, as it were, to a female Afghan judge. And um, I said I'd meet her for a walk and she said she'd be at the Radcliffe camera. And I said, you're in the Radcliffe camera. I've never been in the Radcliffe camera. I've been here for 30 years. I've never been in there. And she said, oh, you can just get in with your ID card. And I thought to myself, why have I never been in there? Um, I walk past it almost every day. And I very often think to myself, gosh, it must be really nice in there. It must be really special to be in there. But it never occurred to me that I could try. And I thought to myself, gosh, when you feel that you will be challenged, um, I didn't even consciously think I would be challenged. I just self-censored. I just didn't allow myself the thought that I might even try to go in. And I thought, wow, that teaches you quite a lot, doesn't it, about belonging. So I, I think I'm always going to be required to give my name, rank and serial number um, before I'm admitted. Um, and, you know, I accept that. Uh, and I think when I stop being dean, you know, the rank will be different and so on. So I suppose in many ways, Oxford, Merton certainly, and the law faculty have allowed me to get on with my job um, in the same way it's allowed anyone to get, get on with their job and given them freedom to do that. It's incredible. Um, but in some ways, I, you know, still know um, people let me know what they think they see. <laughs> mm. I mean, you know, I have I've carved out a, a corner for myself here where I live and where I'm actually really happy. I can't imagine anywhere else where I would be, you know, as happy as I am here. Uh, I don't know what it is to belong. And I would say that Twitter has given me another tribe uh, online. Of um, It's taken me outside the Oxford bubble and Oxford really is a bubble. And there are bubbles within bubbles in Oxford, of course, but uh, it's helped me to reach and for other people to find me and for us to find each other online who are minorities in um yeah in our context and um to find support that way the number of people who've written to me to say oh my gosh you know it's such a relief and, and I you know I got teary reading your tweets because this has happened to me and I always thought it was me I always thought I was the one that was stupid I thought I, it was me that you know didn't maybe I didn't make myself clear enough and people ignored me and so I think in a way, I found a tribe, a virtual tribe online. So um, whatever happens to Twitter, you know, I'm not going over to the elephant. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Do you think the the conversations, it sounds like they make a difference. They definitely make a difference to those who have had similar experiences. What do you think in terms of the impact that it's having on Oxford more broadly and in changing the experiences for the future? Um, well, that's in a way not for me to answer. I think for me, I know that this it's caused discomfort for people. I've been told that I shouldn't talk about things in Oxford, and I certainly shouldn't talk about things that happened to me whilst I've been dean. Um, but I'm very careful never to identify anyone because that's not the point. So I think partly the point is to educate. Uh, I was asked to give a talk to a a European Academy uh, with two and a half thousand people in the audience. And 
one of the people who invited me said, I read about racism and I understood it intellectually, but it was through reading your tweets that it made me see it and understand it in a 360 kind of way. And so I like to think that it has an educational function. Um, people are sometimes shocked by the things that have happened to me. So I think from that point of view, it's quite educational uh, because they they can't imagine that that should happen to someone. And I mean, I would say that even a few days ago, um, someone said, you know, come and sit with me now. Tell me, tell me why you are the Dean of Oxford, you know, I mean, you can take that in different ways, you know, uh, or I tweeted the other day, someone said, well, you know, where are you from? And I said, I'm from New Zealand, you know, my accent is very New Zealand. And he said, are you Maori? And I said, no, I'm Chinese. And he said, but how can you be from New Zealand? And you just, you know, and so I've become an anthropologist in a way, because mm -hmm. Uh, you have to stand on the balcony. You can't be inside the room because, uh, you know, they're not reacting to the me that is Mindy. They're reacting to who they see. And that's why we're called racialized minorities, because you racialize what you th you are talking to who you think you see. Um, so I think it's been an uncomfortable experience. And I find it interesting that I have now probably spoken at eight different international institutions and Oxford's never asked me to speak. Hmm. Hmm. That is interesting. <laughs> Mindy, I wonder, it, it sounds like, and just watching on from afar, that the time that you've spent as Dean has been uh, tremendously intense, uh, uncomfortable at times. Uh, you've achieved a lot, have been doing so much. What do you think after you finish your position as Dean will be on the agenda? Will you be trying to take these uh, the Race Me Too campaign forward after that? Or what, what do you think your focus will be after you finish as Dean? Well, I've said that I'm not someone who plans. Mm, yes. So I will finish my job to the best of my ability. Um, I will be very pleased to hand it on to someone else. And I will not worry what they do with it. I will not worry about what they do with my initiatives. Uh, it's, you know, I think you do your job and you move on. So um, I have a lot of writing projects to finish, the Asian contract law series. I want to finish the, um, I mean, it's, par it's partly the same diversity and inclusion agenda, really. The idea that um, we've been too Eurocentric in our study of laws and we go on about ourselves being a global university, but we still teach only English law or, um, you know, we're, we're still relatively Eurocentric. And I think if this is the Asian century, and it is because uh, for all sorts of reasons, um, it's undoubted that they will become more and more important it's really important we know how they do things and that we do some study and we do it respectfully. And uh, so I have, um, I'm hoping that I'll get to the stage of having enough research out there, including a text cases and materials that we can actually, any law school will be able to teach the contract laws of Asia. Uh, so that's a, a big agenda already. Yeah, it's a huge project. Yeah. And my, I mean, I'm hoping to be a grandma at some point, although my children have, my, my son, one of my sons has got a dog. So I think, I think <laughs> I'm a, yeah, I have a grand dog. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I, I'm an opportunist and I, you know, I'm not a planner. I will 
I will go on and do things and I think I will continue to travel. I think it's a tremendous freedom that I have to do things that feels good to me and that I enjoy. So I don't have any big plans. People have said you need to write up the race me too. Um, uh, I may do so maybe when I retire, but um, I think, you know, it's an extracurricular thing for me. I'm not the ED&I person in the university. So when they come and ask me what they should do, I think, well, that's kind of your job, you know. <laughs> you know, those of us who are racialized minorities often do the do the work for you. You know, you we, you know, don't keep asking us what mm. you should do. Um, so I, I did it. It was an again, it was an opportunistic thing. I think I've mentioned already that it, it happened because the university was having a race equality consultation and they interviewed me. And it was the first time I'd thought about race in my 30 years here. I'd never spoken about it. Uh, I knew it would get me absolutely nowhere. Um, you know, there was a big racist incident that happened to me and my sons, which was incredibly frightening. And then the next day I was challenged going into my own office. And these were the reasons why I started tweeting. And then it, again, there was no plan for a campaign. You you know, if you go back, you'll see the hashtag appear sometime after I started tweeting because I thought, right, here we go, you know. Um, and then, of course, whether it, it continued or not was, again, opportunistic, depended on who wrote to me, who encouraged me, who discouraged me. Um, sometimes people trying to discourage me, actually, I'm a very contrary person. So that would make me want to tweet some more uh, when people said you shouldn't tweet. You know, I, I, I sort of said, someone said you shouldn't tweet because if people recognize themselves, it will make them feel uncomfortable. And I therefore immediately tweeted, so let me get this straight. You can insult me, disrespect me, you know, make me feel really pretty bad about myself. And yet if I, it's, yet it's not my story to tell, even if I don't identify you, because you might recognize yourself, you might feel uncomfortable. What about my comfort, you know? And I think, I think Twitter's given me a voice in a way that I haven't had before because I know lots of people are down on Twitter but I think it can be used for good mm. so I don't know is the short answer I'm going to take a year sabbatical I'm going to see my very elderly parents because as an immigrant you have to take your turn <laughs> yes um, making sure that you're there so yeah so a lot of writing and um, which I love now by the way I love the time to write and, um, yeah, we'll see what happens. And twists and turns along the way, I'm sure. <laughs> Mindy, we might wrap up with some rapid fire questions for you. I love asking these questions because they take us to where we might not have gone already in the conversation. The first question I have for you is something interesting you've learned about yourself or more generally in the past year. So how important it is to discipline your emotions so it doesn't master you. Um, if you can't do anything about it, don't ruminate. Don't punish yourself. Don't take it personally. And if you wouldn't respect the advice of the person who has been horrible to you, don't be upset by their opinions. Um, try to be on good terms with people, even if you don't like them. Uh, don't make unnecessary enemies. I like Ruth Bader Ginsburg's um, advice, you know, be a little bit deaf and a little bit blind. <laughs> yes, powerful. Those all sound like things that you might have learnt just also in the course of your position as dean. Yes, yes, no, def <laughs> definitely. 
um, I, I, th they were certainly practiced a lot. <laughs> mm, I can imagine. Okay, one person you'd want to have a meal with, alive or dead? Gosh, I mean, that's a really hard one. And I, I know this has been conventionally asked of other people, but I, I think everybody is interesting if you're curious enough. Everybody. I was an oral historian. So I'm, uh, you know, I interviewed First World War soldiers. And I think everybody's got is living history. So so I don't I, I can't think of anyone who will be particularly interesting because I find if I sit down with anyone, they're really fascinating. Mm. Oh, I love that. I love that. And I can imagine then also that you must love dinners at college and just meeting whoever might end up sitting next to you. I can see. Yeah. I can see that. Mm. Uh, the best or most useful advice that you've received, Mindy, or just a piece of advice that you feel the need to share? Well, I think maybe two. So one time when I was, you, you, know, you talked about my early days in Oxford being uh, very difficult, and I was certainly very down on myself. And I remember a colleague saying to me, listen, Mindy, the, the rest of the world gets by on C+. What makes you think you're so special, you know, that you have to be A plus all the time? And I think those people who are perfectionists need to remember that, that quite often good enough is good enough. You don't have to make it perfect. And the second piece is, again, from my early days, I remember giving a contribution at a faculty meeting and coming out and someone senior professor said, oh, that was a good point you made. And I said, yeah, but it's not the Oxford way. And he said to me, listen, Mindy, you are the Oxford way. And I remember thinking, bloody right. I thought, even if you've made a mistake, too bad, I'm here now. You know, and I kind of took that on. And I think you have to own it. Nobody's going to make way for you. They're not going to give you a seat at the table. You just have to take it. Uh, that is very powerful advice and um, I think very fitting. So a great point to conclude the conversation. Thank you so much, Mindy, for your time today and for the conversation. It's also, it's just, it's got me wanting to go and get to my desk and get to it and to be the Oxford way myself. So thank you very much. Well, that was really fun to talk to you, Sophie. Bye-bye.